The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. The following podcast contains explicit language. So, how'd you get your nickname, Jukebox? When I was a kid, I knew all the songs on the radio. I could imitate anybody. Are you good? I was better than good. I was great. Hey everybody, this is another episode of Represent, and I'm your host, Aisha Harris. So first, some quick housekeeping. A lot of you have been asking if we're going to talk about Detroit, and the answer is yes. While the opening box office weekend was not that great, and I'm sure a lot of you probably didn't even go to see it, we still think it's worth talking about, so we will have that for you next week. On today's show, we talk to the incredibly talented Anika Noni-Rose, a.k.a. the voice of Disney's first black princess, Tiana about her latest game-changing role on the hit Stars series, Power. If you're a fan of the show but aren't caught up on this latest season yet, you may want to return to this episode after you do, because there shall be spoilers. But before we get to that, we're going to get pretty serious and discuss the new documentary, Whose Streets, which combines citizen journalism, news clippings, and first-person storytelling in order to present the perspectives of the local activists who participated in the Ferguson protests in 2014. Returning to the show is my colleague, Jamal Bowie. Welcome back to the show, Jamal. It's great to have you on. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So today we're going to get into Who's Streets. It's a new documentary by the filmmakers Damon Davis and Saba Folayan. And it centers around the Ferguson protests following the death of Michael Brown back in 2014. It covers of several months after the, um, the murder happened. And... It it follows three separate activists in Ferguson. Brittany Farrell, who's a 25-year-old registered nurse. David Witt, who is a recruiter for the civilian organization uh, known as Copwatch. And Tori Russell, who's a co-founder of Hands Up United. And through these different stories, we are seeing many different angles of the protest. Um, but these are all people who were there, <clears throat> who lived there, who experienced it firsthand. And it's this type of storytelling we don't usually see, we didn't really see uh, too much of in the midst of all of this. And um, what Folayan has said about the film is, and I'll quote her here, What was being put on the news was only catching the surface of the issues. Sensationalist, inflammatory language was hyping the story to get ratings. But as a society, we needed to get to the truth and to positive dialogue. So, Jamel, I remember back in 2014 when all this was going down, you actually went down there yourself as a journalist for Slate. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So you were there in the midst of all of it. And so before we even get into the film, I wanted to hear a bit about like your perspective on the way in which the media, um, like what you saw down there. And I mean, I think I know, I think we can both agree that the media did in many ways twist the things that were happening, calling uh, calling the events riots instead of protest, a lot of semantics, all of that stuff. But as you were there witnessing it firsthand and you were there amongst other journalists, was there, is there anything you can say about like what it was like for you and whether or not you saw firsthand certain journalists? You don't have to name any names, but like if you were seeing what the people who lived there were seeing. Right. So I was there for about two weeks total, and I was there during, I think, the first big flare-ups between protesters and the police. I saw... Um, you know, colleagues at other outlets, fellow journalists doing their work similar to mine. Uh, I saw television outlets doing what looked like responsive reporting. I saw television outlets like Fox News, uh, the kind of stuff highlighted in the documentary, doing what appeared to be less responsible reporting. Um, 
And on top of all of that, I think I should add that there are limits to even what the best reporting can capture from an event like Ferguson. It's difficult to communicate all the nuances involved, um, even for something as straightforward as a protest. Now, one thing I think the documentary did a good job of was kind of showing the moments at which protests sort of turned to something more chaotic and violent and, and showing how that turn was a function of a whole bunch of different things. Early on, you see the first protest after Michael Brown is killed and the police show up with, you know, uh, weapons and, and they're sort of in martial uniforms and that kind of thing agitates people. So that right there kind of begins an escalation process that didn't that wasn't there prior. Right, right, right. I mean, that's one of the things that I found really interesting about the film. And I think it leads to sort of the the big question that I kind of want to get at through this this discussion of this film is what does the film and the access that the filmmakers have like tell us about the difference between the organization around civil rights in the 60s 50s 60s and what it is now and to me I think what the film really shows is that is the power of image the power of video and the power that people have now with cell phones and with self re- self reporting. Now, obviously we've seen the limits of those powers um in terms of, you know, the many police shootings we've had and body cams still not being able to necessarily turn into a conviction even when it's very clear what's happening in a video. But I think that one of the things I noticed and I remember about 2014 and that and watching those protests is like going online and seeing like being able to watch the sort of the amateur videos that were just being posted on these random like on Reddit and on these random sites of just firsthand like live. This is what's happening right now of the protests happening and seeing it from the point of view of the protesters and not seeing it like playing on TV or, or like through like a, an online magazine like Slate. Like it was firsthand account. And what this documentary does is it weaves not just the filmmakers footage of them being down there, but it also weaves in a lot of the, the cell phone video camera footage there. And to me, that is the biggest difference between what we saw in the sixties and what we see now. Yeah. It's interesting to think about this exact question because I'm, I'm sort of, I I may have said this on, on the show before, but I'm kind of always of the opinion that there's, um, there's less new under the sun than we think. And looking back to the 60s, there, the civil rights movement was very much on the forefront of using media to get a desired outcome. And so what else was the march on the Edmund Pettus Bridge um, in Selma, but like a very savvy media strategy of of galvanizing people um, by forcing them to witness some pretty awful stuff. And you can say that about... The, the boycotts in Birmingham. You can say that about the activities all throughout the early 60s. I mean, this was uh, the uh, SCLC, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, the uh, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC, um, the Mississippi uh, Democratic Mississippi Freedom Party or Mississippi Democratic Freedom Party. Uh, all of those institutions use the media that existed to almost their maximum advantage. And so there's a lot of ways in which Today's civil rights movement is sort of doing, not doing the same thing, but kind of utilizing the 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 media ecosystem we have today in a similar way of being able to, um, you know, utilize the ubiquity of of recording devices to present um, the reality of what they're protesting. I mean, what's interesting, right, is that in the '60s, if Civil rights protesters were attacked on cameras, on CBS cameras, and this was aired that evening. There was no real alternative visual depiction, right? There was no, um, that was for all intents and purposes what happened Mm -hmm. uh, to many Americans. But today, the difference is you can have, again, we saw this in the documentary. What Fox News presents or what a Breitbart reporter presents is going to be very different than what a Black Lives Matter protester presents or what a sympathetic journalist presents. And so viewers uh, have a choice of what presentation they want. And I think that 
has an influence on the effectiveness of, of the use of media uh, today, mm-hmm. um, which is, you know, which is, yeah, just something that didn't exist then. Then you had newspaper editorials and, and whatnot, but visually you really only had one set of information. Right. And I mean, I remember, so one moment in particular that stood out to me during, in, in the documentary, was the scene where the woman was trying to go back to her, um, trying to get her car. Okay. I'm trying to walk around, trying to walk around this way because my car is over there. I'm genuinely trying to get back to my car. All the way down that way till all the police in, across the street. So you're going to send me back where it's dangerous and people are rioting and looting when I'm trying to walk in police presence to get back to safety. Well, you shouldn't have come down here. I shouldn't have come down here. I have a right to be wherever I am. You're correct. So to tell me I shouldn't have come down here, that's the exact attitude that got them doing what they're doing. That's not helpful, Officer Neff. And she's recording it, the conversation on her cell phone as she's talking to this police officer. And it was it was a moment like I, I felt like at any moment it could have easily escalated um, and it didn't. But there was that tension and there was also the just the very small nuance of this police officer like telling this woman that she can't do something as simple as go to her car and actually sending her back into the violence. Whereas had she not been a black woman, had she been probably any other, you know, white woman, whatever, he probably would have been like, yeah, go ahead, go get your car. Or at least he wouldn't have said, go like go back to where everything is happening. So you could possibly put yourself in danger. And like those small moments of, what is essentially sort of self-reporting she's just recording something that's happening um i think is is where the the documentary really has its strengths and and showing um really the the people their side of the story in a way that you can't get in a you know one minute long news clip on even msnbc or cnn the more um supposedly fair and balanced news outlets right i think that's right i I think the the documentary does a great job and and it it, you know it does that in a way that kind of builds sympathy for the protesters and showing kind of the capriciousness of it all um i I was watching it with my wife um i don't know if she's supposed to watch screeners with other people but i watched it with my wife and um (laughs) she was sort of a bit taken aback by just like the casual pettiness and compressiveness of the police. And that is something that you could, that you only see captured through these little moments, these sort of like these, I mean, not even would call them reporting videos, sort of videos, just chronicling kind of just taking in information. Um, and uh, they help, they help give, I think more context, what was happening uh, in Ferguson at the time in a really important way and it helps suggest what Ferguson was like before that, why exactly people were so angry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I do want to talk a bit more about the actual people that the filmmakers chronicle because they are sort of our, uh, our, our narrative. They are the through the sort of through line and who we follow throughout, um, particularly Brittany Farrell, who is the registered nurse. She's a uh, raising her daughter and is in a relationship with another activist, um, uh, a female activist. And the way in which that story is portrayed to me is I, like I almost <laughs> I almost cried at the end um, throughout her story just because. I feel like there's so much compassion from the filmmakers to uh, towards Brittany and her story, which is, you know, she was on her way to, um, you know, having a, a good career as a nurse. And she says she has like all the contacts. She has all like like she's going to be doing well. And then, you know, Michael Brown is killed and she decides, well, I can't like this is happening where I live. I need to devote myself full time to this. And so what I really thought was interesting about this was her storyline especially showed the sort of sacrifices that activists have to make in order to do like full time activists, not like, you know, part time or, you know, do it like things that you might get paid to do, like whether you're like a DA, whatever, like she's not getting paid to do this. Like she is like coming out of her pocket and while also raising her child and teaching her child uh, like Asada Shakur quotes.
I got it. Just like I love this. And so I, I'd love to talk a little bit about like her trajectory and sort of what you thought about that because I was just really I loved it. <laughs> what about you? <laughs> I mean, I you know I, I to take like a bit of a like a step back and take like a general picture of, of representation of them and then others in the film. I was just sort of impressed. Two things that filmmakers avoided doing, which I was impressed by, and I appreciated. The first was trying not to present like someone's person as like this charismatic leader of the whole thing, um, which mm. is falling yeah. in sort of old frames. But second, highlighting the role, and this is noted by people on the ground at the time. It's been noted subsequently, but I'm not sure, quite sure, it's penetrated mainstream consciousness. The role in which women, uh, black women specifically, uh, played in the organization of the Ferguson protests and have played in the kind of Black Lives Matter movement more broadly. And black queer women specifically, yeah. Yes, black queer women specifically, yeah. And so with that, with that sort of said, I thought, you know, I thought going into exploring Britney's life somewhat, um, sort of uh, giving space not just for her as an activist but her as a human being a person who loves and is loved um who has uh sort of a whole host of different concerns i thought that was um i thought that was like i'm trying to think of a better word than like very strong but like i thought it was just like a very remarkable thing to see in a documentary i mean you just don't see that you don't see that really in very much film. Right. So uh, I was impressed by it. I, I thought the same as well for the, the kind of explorations into the lives of the other activists. There's the young man with, um, with cop watch who, you know, you saw him with his children uh, and his uh, partner as much as you did um, him as an activist. I mean, it was, it was showing that these people, it was doing two things. It was showing that they're people and showing what the stakes of all of this was for them. Exactly. And I mean, one of the stakes we see is towards the end, uh, Brittany is arrested uh, while protesting uh, during one of the big protests where the protesters kind of shut down the streets, the highway, and uh, were blocking the cars from passing. And there's a lot there's a lot going on there. I mean, like, first of all, this is it shows a bit of the the issues that come come up with intersectionality um, because some of the protesters were white. And at one point we see, you know, a bunch of protesters who are in the street blocking the cars. But then we see a bunch of I don't know if they were I can't remember if they were all white, but a lot of them were white who were on the side because they were afraid they were going to get arrested. And Brittany's like yelling at them like you can't join like you can't just you knew you were going to get arrested. Like the possibility was there. Like, don't don't chicken out now. Um and after that, she's arrested. And then when she reads um, the police statement that they made on her, or like the police record that they left on her, the way in which they describe her, they at one point they, they talk about how like she was doing some sort of quote unquote tribal chant. And I just thought that that really showed in a way the way in which not just the media obviously gets it wrong, but the way in which the actual people involved, the police obviously, and and the people who are deciding the legal fates of these women and men are, you know, cr- just um, reinforcing these stereotypes. Yes, I agree completely. Another, and just one other aspect I want to touch on before we go is the idea, of the difference between these generations, because there is a moment, uh, we not just have Britney sort of, trying to raise her daughter and like we see her daughter becoming like a budding activist herself even though i think she's probably like six or seven she's very young uh but then we also have a moment uh during uh i think it was during ferguson october where what they called ferguson october where they're having a um discussion in the giant like stadium and the the president of the NAACP is speaking and some audience members start to say let the yet the young people speak yet the let the black lives matter protesters speak and so Tefpo and Ashley Yates from Black Lives Matter came on stage and Tefpo went in when it was an armored vehicle on West Florissant when none of y'all that man when none of y'all that now one not one. And at this point, I don't care about nobody's opinion about what we doing. I don't care about how it look. It ain't made for TV. This ain't your daddy's civil rights movie. 
This ain't your daddy's civil rights movement. He goes on a tear, indicting everyone from, you know, the the people who claim to be racial um, progressives. Uh, I think I think he calls out Cornell West at one point. He calls out Don Lemon, calls out a lot of people. Oh, and the clergy as well. There's a lot going on. And that generational divide is very it's still happening now. Um, I think Verilyn included in some of our notes a link to a NPR piece. We can include a link in our show page to it. But um, about how the NAACP is really at a cross. I mean, I feel like it's been at a crossroads for decades, but especially now with the Black Lives Matter protests, it seems even more at a crossroads. And I'm just curious as to what you thought about the way in in which it portrayed like that generational divide. I I think it got at one something that has been commented on quite a bit, which is that the, the generational divide is very real. The NAACP obviously was founded over a century ago, but it's still kind of connected to the, to the black church and its DNA very much still has the respectability politics of that era of the 10s and 20s and 30s, um, as well as sort of roots in kind of the black bourgeois Um so that that is real, and my attention is, is real, especially given that these activists in Ferguson were likely either working class or students or um, people just kind of marginally attached to economic life in general. But I think, and this might just be a function of just like this is what happens when you make movies. Um, that like those divides and differences are real, but they can sometimes also be overstated. You know, for as much as there are mm-hmm. real tensions there, it is also the case that there have been many more. There have been many traditional African African American leaders who have been quite supportive of Black Lives Matter, and some of this is just overstated. Um, that some of these divides have been smoothed over a little bit, and while they haven't gone away, it is also not the case that there's like you know, pervasive hostility here. It's just really kind of your standard issue generational difference that was acute at the time of Ferguson, but there seems to be like more mutual understanding. Right. I mean, it seems like a lot of that tension does stem more so from the organization, the NAACP, as opposed to necessarily individuals. I know uh, Harry Belafonte has been someone who's been supportive of the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, One last thing before... We go. I know I said earlier this would be the last, but what do you think of the way in which Darren Wilson was framed in the film? Yeah, that was interesting because um, he doesn't show up until quite some time into the movie. Um, there's like there's almost like two, it's about an hour and forty something minutes, and he shows up at like the hour and sixteen minute mark, and so he's he's only there for a couple minutes, right? And after that, he becomes kind of like a presence, like a specter, as you see clips of police officers wearing, you know, I support Darren Wilson bracelets and so on. Um, but he's only there for a little bit. I thought that appearance was interesting. It was very unsympathetic, right? And that's obviously mm-hmm. I think what they were going for. Um, by this point, Wilson seems to have gained a little weight. Um, he, he refers to himself as like a very simple man, and he kind of looks like a very simple man, if that makes any sense. Uh, <laughs> yes. And we should I, we should note that this is an interview right. with George Stephanopoulos. Like it's a video cam, um, like a, a ABC News, I think, ABC News inter- interview with George Stephanopoulos in which he appears. That's right. And Stephanopoulos is obviously skeptical of him. Um, of Wilson's claim that, you know, racial prejudice has no place in his decision-making and had no place in his decision-making then. Um, And I'd be curious to hear what you think here, because I I wasn't entirely sure, like, other than kind of just showing that Wilson existed and putting him in, like, an unflattering light, I'm not really sure what other purpose his introduction served beyond that, given that it was very much, you know, a couple minutes and he was gone. Right. Like it, it. Well, to me, it seems like it was what the filmmakers obviously wanted was to really, really focus on F- Ferguson itself and the people um, th- who were affected by it, who weren't necessarily the main main players there. Um, but I also I, I saw it sort of as the akin to, you know, the the movie villain, like sh- the the shark in Jaws, where you don't see it until the last like you know, 30 minutes of the movie. And that felt like a very deliberate 
like you said, a way to make it him seem even more like a villain. And I thought I found it effective uh, to some extent. I also just wondered if it would have been better if he hadn't even been in the movie. Right. Like if we hadn't seen him at all. Yeah, I think I think if I were doing it, I would have had him very much at the, at the beginning. Like I would have had him earlier, earlier in. Like have him appear as sort of like this villain and then he can recede to the background and he will also act to contextualize everything. Right, right. Well... Thank you so much, Jamal, for joining us today for this conversation. I would recommend people see this film. What about what about you? I would too. Um, I think I think even even if I have like very minor kind of like I always wish things were ten minutes shorter um, uh, <laughs> criticisms. I think it's a super um, interesting documentary. Having been there, it struck me as being true to what happened, and it's it's definitely worth your time. Yeah. I mean, I can say that I was skeptical about going into this film mostly because I'm kind of weary <laughs> of of watching these things uh, and seeing them unfold again. Uh, but, you know, I think that it's worth it and everyone should definitely go see it. It, it will get you in the field, but in, I think, the best way possible. Thanks so much, Jamal. Thank you. And now, my conversation with Anika Noni-Rose. As I mentioned earlier, she's recently given a startling, incredible performance as Jukebox on Power. Now, Jukebox is a monstrous, dirty cop who's the cousin and accomplice of 50 Cent's Kanan. And that role is a huge change of pace for her, as she usually plays characters who are much sweeter and definitely less morally repugnant. Whether it's Laurel in the film version of Dreamgirls, Benitha in the 2014 Broadway revival of A Raisin in the Sun, or the voice of Tiana. Disney's first black animated princess and the princess and the frog. I sort of geeked out over that little tidbit right there. We discussed what it was like to create such an evil character on power, dealing with difficult directors, and what playing Tiana has meant to her. Check it out. Well, it is an absolute pleasure today to have Anika Noni Rose on Represent. Welcome to the show, Anika. Thank you. Thank you very much. I've uh, been a huge fan of yours uh, for a very long time, ever since Carolina or Change, oh. actually. <laughs> um, I was a theater kid in college, and uh, I remember everyone wanted to do I Hate the Bus as like their audition song. So, love you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, and I also want to say that like you, I have Bloomfield, Connecticut roots. Do you? Yes. That's amazing. My grandmother has been there all her life. My mom was and her what was siblings your were name? uh Virgia Johnson. I don't know if you know her. But no, I wonder if my grandmother would have known her. What um what school did you go to? High school? Bloomfield. Oh, okay. My my grandmother <laughs> went to Weaver. I don't oh, know. okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So and my grandmother was a teacher at Hartford High and then we had a lot oh. a lot of friends at Weaver, like Frances Sharp was mm-hmm. a teacher at Weaver, Paulette Carter teacher at Weaver. Well, my grandmother's also a fan, so. <laughs> Hi, Grandma. I wanted to mention you. <laughs> anyway, you are currently on power. Yes. Your character, Jukebox, yes. is, she's a badass. She I mean, is. a freaking badass, which is a huge difference from what I've ever seen you do. And I'm curious as to, like, how did this fall in your lap? Or how did you get the part? And what made you want to take on this role? It sort of did fall in my lap. I had I had met Courtney Kemp, who is the creator and showrunner, at a um, at a game night at Mutual Friends House nice. <laughs> years ago before she was doing Power. And she actually had been a writer on The Good Wife. So she was familiar with me and my work. And we were talking. And she was like, you know, what would you love to do that you never get to do? And I was like, I would like to be an utter badass. Mm -hmm. Like if I can be on a motorcycle, that'd be great. (laughs) Um, But just like fierceness. Um, And then a few years later, I got a call saying, hey, there's a role for you on power. And I said, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It's, um, it's so much fun. It's so freeing. It's, uh, you know, it's just so very different from all the other things that I've done. And so I really get to play, which is fun. Yeah. I mean, isn't those are the types of stories I love to hear is when it's just like, oh, yeah, this producer, this writer asked me what I wanted to do. And then like later on, they were like, hey, I got this role for you. Yeah. That sounds awesome. It was awesome because, you know. People ask you those types of things, but usually it's just musings, like they want to know, they're trying to pick your brain or mm-hmm. figure out more of 
you know, what you're interested in, but you don't ever really expect it to come back and turn into something. Right. So I'm really thankful to her for that. I, she, you know, she just has a lot of, she had a lot of faith in me and it's a very actor friendly set. So I was allowed to create the person that I thought this person was, you know, off of the script, but also just who who I saw her as and heard her as. And what did you see her as? Like, what were some of the biggest changes or evolutions that occurred between what you read on the page that first time and then what you became on screen? I think she's she's, you know, she's pretty much who I thought she was. I don't think like there's no direction in the script to tell me how to be her. Mm. They're only the lines. And so I'm a New Yorker. I um, I know New York well. I love New York. Um, I've been looking at New Yorkers for a very long time. And and I'm, I'm nosy. Like, I pay attention to people. <laughs> I pay close attention to people. So it's just really about me feeling who this person is and sort of putting her together from you know, all the people who have potentially frightened me in my life and <laughs> that I've that I've either had, you know, preferably no interaction with. Usually if you see somebody like Jukebox, there's a feeling that you get that tells you perhaps this is not the person you want to interact with. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I just sort of, I could hear her voice very clearly and it made sense to me and I just let it, I just opened myself up and let let it be, mm-hmm. really. Did you, I mean, Jukebox is, she's a a lesbian, and Mm -hmm. that is is inherently part of her character. And I'm curious as to, like, did you have any concerns about how to portray her? And and just because queer people of color uh, can often be under, they are underrepresented and sometimes misrepresented. Mm -hmm. And did you have any sort of sensitivities to that or how you wanted to approach it? Or was that just... I did. I I did. I, I was very aware of things that I didn't want her to be. I didn't want her to be a stereotype. Mm. Like she's hard and she's a badass, but she's a cop. Right. You know, and she's a little woman. So she she can't be sweet and, you know, easy in right. that position. Um, and she grew up on the streets. She's a cousin of Canaan. So that, again, she can't be sweet and easy. Yeah. But I had randomly been reading this book. I can't remember what it's called right now. Mm, can't remember. And in this book, there was a woman who was a straight woman, and she fell in love with this with this lesbian. And she was shocked about it, and they talked about it, and she was like, I don't know what it is about you. And the, the, the lesbian character, we'll call her, I don't know, Michelle. Michelle says, oh, it's because I'm the sweet spot. Mm-hmm. And the girl said, what? What do you mean? She says, I'm the sweet spot. I'm just masculine enough, and I'm just feminine enough. So that it, it it brings you in and this is where you want to be because you have all of everything that you would want. And I was like, yes, sweet spot. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, I, and I remembered that when I was prepping for Jukebox. I said I wanted her to be the sweet, the sweet spot, you mm-hmm. know. She's not um, – she's mildly a lipstick lesbian, but she's not – She's not a girly girl by any stretch of the imagination. Right. Like she's got a lot of, a lot of dude in her, and I and I think that actually, even speaking of straight women, you know, I think that as people, we are often attracted to when we are attracted to to men, we are drawn not only to the masculine side of them, but the feminine side, the side that reminds them of us the, the fact that they can be if they can be soft or if they can be sweet or they can be whatever right um and vice versa like dudes love girls who can you know climb a tree and jump across a river and all those types of things so i think that that's really um important when we think about who she is because i you know cavalierly will say you know she's 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 got a lot of dude in her but I, you know i got a lot of dude in me too like i'm you know i'm a tree climber i'm a jumper i was a kid who was gonna like jump my bike over something mm-hmm. and so as we talk about the norm of what sexuality is and what we have been taught socially that that means i can say that i you know mm-hmm. I, I have a lot of boy in me mm-hmm. um and i'm good with that and i'm happy with that um so i i Wanted her to be someone who hit that sweet spot. And, um, you know, when it's time to throw down, she's taking no prisoners. Um, But also when she's having her 
um, relationship with her woman, who's fine, Mm -hmm. um, you know, she appreciates everything about that woman physically and what she does in the house. So that when I walked in to see her in the house, I wanted to drink her in and take in the bits that really that I loved in that moment. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, so it's really about being respectful of relationship and being respectful of what what love can be. It's the sweet spot. I love I love that that description, especially because I I've learned over time that there there can be not necessarily exceptions, but you know there have been women who consider themselves straight but fall in love. They find that one mm-hmm. person who is also a woman, and it just it just works. Yeah, and I'm not somebody who doesn't find women attractive. Yeah, like I always find guys who are like you're like, yeah, was he handsome? Well, I don't know. I'm gonna tell you. You know when somebody's handsome and when they're not. Don't play that game. With uh, yeah, me. I, I think women are beautiful. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like I would in in some. In some ways, I'd rather see the naked female form than the entire naked male form. You I think know that's I mean? a lot of women. Right? Yeah, I think that's mo- yeah. I'm like, whoa, easy with that. Can we put that in the shade? <laughs> um, <laughs> but women, you know, we're so soft and rounded. And when I think of like Botticelli and even um, Rodin, who has some beautiful, really sc- beautiful sculpture work, and you know. It's about the curve. Yeah. I mean, speaking of women, this is Power is one of the very few shows that is run sh- run by a black woman. Yes, from Connecticut. Oh, she's also from Connecticut. Yes, she is. I didn't know that. Where? Uh, Do you know? I can't remember what town. Okay. I can't remember. Further further south. Okay. I grew, yeah, I grew up in the New Haven County area. So mm-hmm. anyway. But yes, Courtney, uh, she's very one of the very few who are running a, a major network TV show. Mm-hmm. What was that dynamic like for you? And had you ever been in that situation before where, like, you're working on a TV show and the woman at the helm, not necessarily the director, but, like, the showrunner was a a black woman? Not. That was my first time Mm. experiencing that. Did you notice a – was there something noticeably different about the environment and and working in that space for you? Well, let me just say this. Courtney Kemp runs an extraordinarily tight ship. Mm. Really tight. And, you know, part of it is just because she's a professional and that's how she wants her house to be. But I'm sure without asking her and making my own opinion that part of it is that she is a woman and she is a black woman and she can't afford for any phrase, you know, to be seen. She can't afford for dust to be in the corner because what would maybe be acceptable on another set as, oh, you know, well, it's busy and it's blah, 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 would never be acceptable. Um, for somebody walking into her set, it would be a major flaw, right? Even though we know that it's not. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm sure that has part of part of her meth- mythology as well. Methodology. Sorry about that. Mm-hmm. But she's an extraordinarily smart woman. She's extraordinarily capable. I think that if you had pitched the show to somebody and said, "And now we're going to bring a woman in to run it," people would have lost their minds. Uh, except that she's the one who brought it to them, so they didn't really have a choice. Yeah. It was a wonderful thing because I was able to, you know, talk to somebody who really understood whatever concern that I have. She, you know, if I say, you know, we need to take a take a minute with this scene where I'm I'm having this sex scene with this with this woman who has never done a sex scene. A same, I don't think she had ever done a sex scene before either. I haven't done many at all, right? Yeah. Um, and neither one of us had done a same sex love scene before and I wanted it to be very comfortable for her mm. so everything that I wanted to do because basically I did what what I wanted to do in that, in that scene mm-hmm. I wanted it to be something that she was very very comfortable with and I could say Courtney you know we need to really just take our time here and make sure that she's she's comfortable and, and she could get that whereas maybe on another set they'd be like okay let's go you know we've got this much time or whatever mm-hmm. Um, but also she has such a strong respect for, um, for minds and for women's minds in mm-hmm. particular. And I can tell you that I've been on a lot of sets where guys don't want to hear what I have to say. Mm-hmm. And when you're bringing in an actor, hopefully you're lucky enough to bring in an actor who is a thinking person, um, because you get something very special when you bring someone in who who wants to dissect something um, and has done so at home. Mm-hmm. And so if I want to have a conversation with you about something, you, the director, 
then it's something that I've thought about quite a bit and it's important to me and it's not important to me because it's random. It's important to me because it touches on this thing that we do on Wednesday or this thing that we did last Sunday and it mm-hmm. all connects or, yeah. you know, I see something that I can um, enhance. Um, and I have worked on many sets where the director didn't want to hear what I what I had to say. And that's 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 hard to take. Do you have any, I mean, they're the director, but like, do you have any control or is like, how do you deal with that when, when the director doesn't want to hear it? Like, do you just kind of retreat and go, okay, no. I'll go along or? I'm not a retreater. Mm. Um, I feel like you brought me in here because I have an expertise mm. and, you know, we maybe don't need to talk about it in this moment, but we're going to figure out a way to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And, um, y- you know, that is sometimes difficult and, you know, you don't ever the situation is difficult, but you don't ever want to be called a difficult actor. Right. Especially and, as a black as woman. A, oh, please. Yes. And that's the first thing that comes out of somebody's mouth. So I try to just finesse it and, and deal with it in such a way that it's easier than it could be if I were a dude and they would have immediately just butt heads and, you know, mm-hmm. like maybe kick something. <laughs> and it would be okay, but it wouldn't be okay if I were a woman. So I find a way. I try to find a way to, you know, open the door to conversation. And there's some people that it's just not going to happen. And so you then you have the option at that point to either, um, you know, you know when to hold them, know when to fold them. You can either fold, call a day and be like, okay, this is not the fight that I want to have today because there's a really much bigger fight um, 10 pages from now. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And that's a smart thing to know um, whether or not you want to go for it. Yeah. Or, you decide, you know, oh, I don't, well, you decide, fuck it. Yeah. Go, I'm gonna... go ahead. Go ahead and curse. <laughs> we curse here. It's fine. Okay. <laughs> We're quite sure. Yes. <laughs> you know, you decide, fuck it. This is important to me mm-hmm. and you're going to hear me and we will just take a minute until you hear me. Mm. Um, you know, those are two options that you have, you know, and sometimes you do have to like slow things down and just make it clear that it's important. But you have to figure out how that works for you and how that works within what you're doing and how that affects uh, the rest of your shoot. Mm-hmm. You know, I had a director <laughs> scream at me. This was a very large man <laughs> scream at me, standing over me, cursing. And it made me so angry. Mm. Um And I said, you know, you need to stop cursing at me. You need to stop yelling at me. And you need to back up off of me. Mm. Because it was not, it wasn't a cool situation. You know what I mean? And and that person was mad about something that was so negligible. Um, And no, was, were there other people on set and no one really? No, nobody intervened. Mm. I said, what you're doing is very disrespectful. I don't think it's disrespectful. I said, well, regardless of whether you not, you think it's disrespectful. I think it's disrespectful. And I feel disrespected. Right. And at that point, I was so enraged. And I know that if I was a dude, we would have come to blows. But I'm not. So we can't. <laughs> but I was really angry. And then a tear slid out of my eye. And that made me angrier. I know. I was like, oh, my God, I'm crying. Yeah. And he's going to think I'm crying because I'm a girl and I'm sad. But really, I just want to punch him. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, many, so much walking on eggshells with, with there men. can be there really yeah. can be. And based on something as silly as gender. Yeah. Um, and so, I, you know, with Courtney, that that is never going to be a problem. We talk about things. Sometimes we don't agree. We didn't agree about some stuff with the uh, last episode that I did for this season, and we had a conversation about it. And What specifically were you? I'm not going to say. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but we, you know, we didn't agree about it, and um, I, I'm, we weren't pleased with each other for a little while, but not personally. Right. You know, a lot of respect for each other still, but sometimes you disagree. Mm-hmm. And you know what? It's okay. That's a creative process. That's the creative process. And we yeah. talked through it and we figured out a compromise. And I was thankful that she was willing to compromise and not be like my way or the highway, which she also had the right to do. It's mm-hmm. her show. It's her vision. And we are, we still talk to each other and we're happy to talk to each other. So that's a blessing, mm-hmm. you know, to be able to do that. Mm. I mean, speaking of the that last episode, like, what was that your final scene? Like, what was that like for you to oh. to film? It's it's super intense. It's really intense. 
I loved it so much. I really I'm so thought twisted. It, I think I'm a little twisted on the inside. <laughs> well, it, it's finally coming out, so that's good. You know, at least on screen. You know, I have a really twisted sense of humor, and um, I loved it. I was like, this is the nitty gritty. This is the dirt. This is the sticky stuff. Yeah. Um, and I love to be in it. And, um, you know, I just have such a great love for this show and these characters and that character in particular. Um, And looking over at 50 Cent while you're working and he has his, he always has just a mischievous glint in his eye. He (laughs) He looks like pure mischief. It's like it's tattooed on his face. (laughs) Just got a little shine in his eye. Um, I enjoyed him so very much while shooting this. We had a really good time together um, and a beautiful give and take, I think. And who would have known, you know, who would have thought that, that we would have been, you know, freaking frack. Um, (laughs) So it was very intense and it was a lot of fun and it was different than anything, than any scene I've shot, I think, before. Um, And also, you know, a little sad. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) A little sad. But um, experiences like this are special. And so ultimately, I'm really thankful um, because it was really more like doing theater. Yeah. And being allowed to do theater, being allowed to really find a character. And I think so often now that productions go so quickly that it's hard to be, to have the time to find a character. And it's rare for women to be allowed to be characters, real characters, not mm-hmm. just, you know, the woman here, the mother there, the best friend, the young girl, the best friend, the yeah. whatever. But, you know, what is the, what is weird? I like the thing that's weird. I mm-hmm. want to find the thing that's weird about something or fucked up about it. Or what is this character? Where's the glitch? That's mm-hmm. what's interesting to me. Yeah. Um, and so I really felt that that was more, it felt more of a theatrical experience to mm-hmm. me. And I think that's a real gift um, to be able to do. Yeah. I mean, since this was such a break from the type of character you usually play, um, and it seems like you loved playing this character. Yeah. I know that, you know, when you start auditioning, you you have to figure out, and when you're, like, in, like, taking acting class, you have to figure out what your quote-unquote type is. Mm. And, you know, besides this character, like, are there any other sorts of roles that you wanted to play, but, like, you either feel like you could you would never get cast as, or you're just hoping someone will, like, They'll hear your plea and be like, I should do this. I I thought I never would have been cast as Maggie in Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. Like Mm -hmm. It wasn't even in my thought wheelhouse, although it was a play that I always, always loved. Yeah. And and there it was. Um, You know, I miss comedy. Mm -hmm. I miss being able to be comedic. And I think people have forgotten that I've done that. or And so I have to remind them. And it's difficult because Hollywood calls you in for what they know. Right. And what they remember of the last thing that you did. And they sort of try to keep you in that lane. I would love to be a hero, a villain, Mm -hmm. something. I'd love to fly. But also a romantic comedy would be fun. Mm -hmm. You know, and I I yearn for that. I'm about tired of crying. Cried out at this moment. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, speaking of that, I mean, it's not quite, it's different, but you were the first Disney's first black princess. Yes. And I mean, I that meant a lot to me because I grew up on Disney movies and like not being able to see myself. And me unfortunately, too. by the time Prince of the Frog came out, I was way too old for it, but I still saw it. <laughs> because I know grown people who went. Oh, oh, I went. <laughs> I went to it. <laughs> and but they like were all in. <laughs> I went to it and I was all in, but it it was past the point where it could like I was not the young impressionable. You. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um and so I I rewatched it recently for the first time in years. And I realized it's way more ahead of its time, I think, than I think any of us thought it was mm. at the time. It got a lot of flack uh, for various reasons because your character is, unlike other princesses, she's like, she's works hard and she she doesn't believe in wishing on stars. And, and some people were like, well, why can't a black woman just like be carefree, like black girl, happy, free? Um, but to me... I I liked it because it 
it to me it led to what we have now with the Disney princesses like Moana, where they are tough, they are strong, strong. Not well, Moana is technically not a princess, and they say that in the movie. But like the, these female protagonists who are doing their own thing, but also can still be beautiful and still have a romantic interest. Mm. And I just, yeah, I, I I feel like people need to go back and rewatch it because it, it it's way more I think ahead of the curve than. We, we thought it was. And what what was your sort of response? Like, there's there must have been so much pressure on you or maybe directed towards you. I don't mm. know if you felt it, but, like, as the first black Disney princess, like, what was that like for you? I think there could have been a whole lot more pressure if I allowed it to be. Mm-hmm. I feel like every role that I tackle, I try to tackle it with integrity. So I'm not going to do something that I feel isn't going to make me proud and feel good later on down the line. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when I think of the princess and the frog, like my grandmother was so excited mm-hmm. and um, moved by it. So, you know, my mother was bursting at the seams. My nephew was three and perfect for it mm-hmm. and and went away singing songs and... Um, he didn't even call. He would see the doll, and he didn't call it Princess Tiana. He was like, it's Auntie Nika. Auntie Nika, Auntie Nika, come save me. He said we were playing with the dolls, you know. So I, you know, that to me means more than anything, and that I know that I do things with integrity. Mm-hmm. You know, I can't make a character for the entire culture. And when we... Sometimes when we do that, when we have those expectations, you know, we are deciding that I am the representative for all blackdom. Mm -hmm. That's not fair. That's so, that's so much. (laughs) That's not fair. So much, yeah. Um, Nor is it um, plausible. You know, I just, I'm very proud of it. Um, I love the way that it affected young brown children and their parents. Um, I had a man come up to me on Broadway and he started to say thank you and then he started to cry. And he said he had bought a Tiana doll for his daughter for Christmas. And he thought he would never be able to buy a brown princess for his daughter. And he was boo-hooing. I've had children, oh my God, I went to a, we had a screening in Ireland where we were told it wouldn't play well. But why not? Ireland is a land of magic and music and hard work. Yeah. They understand the mm-hmm. journey of black Americans in Ireland because they've gone through something. Um, but they're also children. Right. Yeah. They're children. Yeah. And so I sat in this theater and it was, oh God, it was amazing. These kids loved it and they talked to each other like little itty bitty people through the theater. And when the firefly got hurt, this kid said, oh, um, he's hurt, but he's still alive. Like, like <laughs> yelling in his three-year-old whisper. Aww. And they got it. And they loved it. And it was beautiful to see because they weren't like, oh, this little brown girl, we don't we don't relate to that. Yeah, that's something grownups put on things. Mm -hmm. You know, I've had um, I've seen children in the park. I've seen little redheaded white children. I've seen Asian children um, in their Tiana dresses. I've seen little brown girls walking around feeling so regal. Um, That's a gift. Mm -hmm. I've gotten pictures from there's a woman in Spain who sent me the picture of her child who was doing some sort of recital but she would not do it unless her mother made her a tiana dress in spain you know it's a gift and it will be here long after i'm gone and i am uh honored by it and with it and and thankful to have been able to do it yeah that just proves that representation absolutely matters and is so necessary oh yes yeah oh yes it changes it changes not only what our children think they can be, but what their friends who don't look like them mm-hmm. think and expect that they can be, mm-hmm. that our children can be. Yeah. You know what I mean? You know, when you're doing your school play in elementary school um, and you're not chosen for the princess. Mm-hmm. Well, now somebody might be chosen for the princess mm-hmm. and it would be simple and easy and no debate. Speaking of representation and and seeing seeing yourself or seeing other people who you really admire doing things that you want to do. When is the last time you were watching something, 
something you weren't in any way a part of, you weren't in, uh, where you felt as though you were represented, you saw yourself on screen? You know, Get Out, um, there's a woman who did some work in there who was magnificent. She didn't even have a lot to do. She was the, the, maid. the maid in the house. Yes. What? Yes. She was phenomenal. That scene. Phenomenal. I have a goosebump. Of her cook. <laughs> yeah. I have some goosebumps on my shoulder just talking about <laughs> her when she got to that. No, 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 no. And looking at that on a script, that must have been so... Just Sometimes you hear somebody say something as an actor, and you're like, God, I never would have thought to say that like that. Mm-hmm. I'd have been like, no, no, no. <laughs> you know, you never know. But I thought yes. that it was stunningly brilliant. And I was like, wow, I wish I could have done that. But, like, that wasn't for me, and she was magnificent. <laughs> yeah, that actress, actually, by the way, is uh, Betty Gabriel, actually. Oh, she's yes. fierce. Yes, yes Miss Betty, yes. Yeah. You know, Girls Trip is out. So excited for them to just be out there having fun mm-hmm. is a lovely, lovely thing. Um, there's room for more, mm-hmm. a lot more. And we know this because we see the way that the tickets are selling. Mm-hmm. Um, now, Get Out was a comedy, but not really. Yeah. It was a horror film. Satire, yeah. It was not um, slapstick. It was not, you know, large. It was not hip hop. It was not any of the things that people say we need to be in order to sell. Mm-hmm. Girls Trip is fun and funny and has physical comedy, but it's okay to be silly funny too. Yeah. As long as we have a get out to balance it. Mm-hmm. As long as we have other things to balance it. And so I think that maybe, hopefully, what is happening now is that we're starting to see a balancing. I mean, we, I, we saw a little bit of that. To mention also you did Everything, Everything, the movie. Yes, and I forgot to even see. I wasn't even thinking about myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, we actually had Stella McGee, the director. Mm-hmm. Um, we spoke with her a couple months ago. And, I mean, that was something I had never seen before, like a, a major motion picture based on a young adult novel starring a young black girl. Like, yeah. I couldn't, you know, I can't really think of too many young black protagonists who weren't like in ind- independent films like that people mm-hmm. might not see, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and your character as the mother, you you both had some lovely, lovely scenes together. Oh, I really love Amanda so yeah. much. And she's so smart and uh, aware and uh, forward thinking. And it was nice to be able to play a woman who, and I talked about this a lot, but a woman who appears to have everything together and is so broken on the inside. And I think that there is a real relevance to that because now when I think of, when I was, when I was shooting it, I I thought to myself, okay, well, somebody could take this very lightly and, you know, clearly she's ill and we don't talk about mental illness in the black community very much. And to have this mother who is absolutely functional and capable, but absolutely ill, but also, The level of grief that she was dealing with is so right now today. Mm -hmm. When I think about Sandra Bland's mother, Trayvon Martin's mother. um, Oh, God, that poor baby. Um, Tamaris. Yes. Yeah. These mothers and fathers, but we're speaking specifically of mothers, who have lost a child to a horrible thing and still have children to raise Mm. and lives to live how how do they do that and on top of that having the deaths politicized in that way like it's it's visible it's everywhere yeah how do they continue to do that what do we do with regard to mental health to make sure that we are taken care of so that that doesn't happen so that people don't implode or explode. Mm. Um, I thought that that was very, very relevant. And although, you know, it wasn't part of that, it wasn't a part of the storyline in the same way. Right. Um, it was very, I was very aware of that for me. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on, Anika. Thank you so Thank much. You. And yeah, everyone, if you haven't checked out Bauer, you should check out Bauer. And, <laughs> and I can't wait to see what you do next. I do. I have a movie coming out soon. Ooh. It's called Assassination Nation, and it's lots of fun and wild. Okay, awesome. I have to check that out. <laughs> Yay! Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. 
And that is all. Represent is produced by the lovely, awesome Verlin Williams. Our great social media assistant is Marissa Martinelli. And our intro-outro music is performed by the sweet San Francisco funk soul band, Midtown Social. And one final reminder, our live show as part of the Speak Up Rise Up Festival is happening this Wednesday, August 16th. And I've got an amazing lineup of guests. Writer and trans activist Teek Milan, BuzzFeed's Bim Adewunme, and friend of the show Antonia Sarahito. Tickets are still available at slate.com slash live. We'll see you there. And if you haven't already, and I know I've already mentioned this before, but you should definitely check out Lexicon Valley, another great Slate podcast about language, which discusses everything from pet peeves, syntax, and etymology, to neurolinguistics and the death of languages. It's hosted by John McWhorter, and you can find it wherever you find your podcasts. Until next time. 